0: it's not about the chocolate. How much chocolate did you eat today, or yesterday, or the day before? Well, if you're a typical American, you ate about nine pounds of chocolate in the last year. Of course, if you're Swiss, it's about double that. But it's not about the chocolate. Hey, it's Matt, and this is a special archived episode of Akimbo. You've been eating chocolate, but you might not know much about how it's made. Here's how it happens. A tree, a cacao tree, has a pod on it. And inside that pod is some sweet sort of sappy stuff. It's white. And inside that are some seeds called beans. And those cocoa beans have to be fermented inside the pods in the sun, then dried out, then roasted, shelled ground up in a giant 3,000 pound granite thing called a melangeur, then ground against each other for 30, 40, 60, 80 hours of conking, then some sweeteners added, often, sometimes milk, but that makes it into a whole other product we're not going to get into, then it's tempered and made into bars, but all you know is that you've been eating Chocolate. A bunch of years ago, a guy named Sean Askinosie was having an epic midlife crisis. He was a defense attorney in Missouri, a great one. He was the kind of person that drug dealers would hire to get them off. And he usually won. He wasn't a stranger to murder scenes either. But over the years, it took its toll. And one day, he just cracked. Then he went to a monastery, the monastery where his dad had also served, looking for some insight, some redemption for a way of being in the world. Shortly after that, Sean Askinosie started one of the very first bean-to-bar chocolate makers in the United States. Now there are more than 200 of them, but then in the early days there were fewer than a dozen. Sean's job was to get the beans and somehow figure out how to turn them into bars but he decided to go further. Instead of just buying sacks of beans from an importer, Sean decided to go directly to the farmers. The people who farm cacao trees are some of the poorest people in the world. Many of them make less than $3 a day. There's a bunch of complicated reasons for this. The biggest reason is that the giant chocolate companies want a reliable, reproducible, non-wild product. They want a commodity. They put all of their effort into turning pretty average commodity beans into reliable, pretty average chocolate so they can maximize their profit. As a result, farmers were pushed to grow the productive but not particularly delicious beans and to sell them to the highest bidder, who of course was bidding as low as possible. As a result, that combined with the countries where they lived and the supply chain meant that cacao farmers are overlooked and underpaid. But I said it's not about the chocolate, so let's get to the point. Last year, Sean Askinosie, his daughter Lauren, and their 15 employees, give or take, created enough chocolate, made enough of a difference, dealt with enough farmers face-to-face, that they were able to provide 1 million school lunches in Tanzania and the Philippines where they do most of their work. It meant that Sean and others from his team visited with every single person they were buying the beans from. It meant that Ask does profit sharing directly with the people who grow the cacao beans that are in the chocolate you and I are eating. He uses open book management. Everyone on his team knows how much they spent and they know how much profit they made. If there's any money left over, they use some of that money to run a school in Missouri where thousands of at-risk kids have learned math, social studies, and most of all, achievement by being part of the chocolate process. And some of those students end up going with Sean and his team to the Philippines or Tanzania to see the entire process. He is changing lives. So yes, it's not about the chocolate. It's about changing the culture. And that's what I want to talk about, the culture. What is it? How do we define it? Why do Swiss people eat twice as much chocolate as Americans? They feel normal. We feel normal. What's normal? And what's the purpose of culture? In 1930, the brilliant and famous economist John Maynard Keynes was wrestling with the Depression and trying to figure out what was going to happen to our economy. He wrote a paper called The Economic Possibilities of Our Grandchildren, and he made the daring statement that in 100 years, which is about now, the standard of living would be four to eight times higher than it was then. Well, if anything, he was conservative The results of productivity increases in technology means that even before the hundred years are up, we've vastly exceeded that for many people. Here's the interesting question. Among Western industrialized countries, now that the standard of living has gone up so much, one, are you more likely to spend hours at work now or back then in 1930? And two, does it make you happier? Because after all, what's the point of all this productivity increase, all this creation of wealth, if it's not making you happier? So then we get to some really interesting thoughts that Keynes brought up about the human condition. And basically his thesis was that in order for humans to be happy, they have to do everything they can to get more. That we work harder to get more, more for ourselves and more for our family. And it's been said so often, it seems obvious. And it was obvious until the mid-1960s. Because totally unrelated to everything that Keynes was writing, anthropologists were researching the first, most successful cultures in human history, some of which are still around. The San people of the Kalahari, sometimes called the Bushmen. Hunter-gatherer societies. When we think about a hunter-gatherer society, it's easy to imagine people who don't have enough, who are constantly scrabbling in the desert just to keep from starving. But lots of research, research originally from people like uh, Richard Lee and then written up by Marshall Salins and others, showed that in many examples of a hunter-gatherer tribe, it was typical for people to only work. 15 hours a week, 15 hours a week on hunting, gathering, and the chores of everyday life, the rest of the time spent in socializing and in leisure. Now, I don't want to live in that culture because I grew up in this culture and I've been immersed in it. And so there are all these things I take for granted that I wouldn't have there. But that's not our question. The question is, what is the culture? How about this? Let's define culture as the common story we tell ourselves. That if you and the people around you tell yourself a story that you view as normal, that's the culture. It's separate from the truth of what a human being needs to survive. So breathing is not a cultural artifact. Breathing is something everyone has to do to survive, but putting on short shorts when it's 45 degrees out and going for an eight-mile run, that's culture. We do it because we think it makes us happy. We do it because we think it makes us fit in or stand out. We are juxtaposing our actions against those around us. So the Swiss don't feel like pigs when they eat 15 or 17 or 20 pounds of chocolate a year, that's just what people do. People, meaning people like us. People, meaning the culture. So the question on the table, when someone like Sean Askinosie shows up, when he turns down offers to sell his chocolate at Whole Foods because he has to go through fair trade, which he believes robs farmers from some of their livelihood compared to direct trade, we say he's crazy. Well, he's crazy by the definition of, of our culture. But what if he's trying to change the culture? Why would you do that? Dan Ariely, the great behavioral psychologist, did some interesting work on what makes us happy. He did this experiment, I believe, on college students. So do it with a grain of salt, because college students are overstudied. But what they did was, they went to some subjects and they said, we're going to pay you a little bit of money, Please take these bionicles, which is a little like Lego, and make some figures. And they'd pay somebody to do it. And then they'd ask them how much they'd have to pay them to do another one. Then they compared this to what happens if they had people making these little bionicle sculptures at the same time they were watching the researcher take their previous piece apart and put the pieces back into the box. So two situations in which the labor is exactly the same. But in one case, you are seeing your labor show up, live on the shelf, have some value. And in the other case, you see it destroyed before your eyes. Well, you probably guessed what happened. People wanted way more money to keep making bionicle sculptures when they knew it was useless. That's not human nature. That's our culture. It turns out that when you hang out with the San people and other hunter-gatherer tribes, you notice all sorts of behaviors that we don't think of as normal. James Sussman is the author of a great book called Affluence Without Abundance, about hunter-gatherer tribes. And one thing he reports is that when a hunter brings back a particularly large, abundant piece of, of prey, a big animal. Everybody else in the culture around them criticizes them. They criticize the animal. Oh, this isn't so big. This isn't so good. They're downgrading it. Why would they do that? Because in a Western culture, you'd get bragging rights. Those bragging rights could last for a really long time. Our culture, our newspapers, our media, is filled with success stories the celebrity who's better than everybody else because they won something. But in this hunter-gatherer situation, the opposite is true. Why? Well, it turns out that over tens and tens of thousands of years, it makes the group happier when no one has an up on everybody else. You take what you need, you give what you can. And in 15 hours a week, that's enough. And by intentionally creating a dynamic where you are not rewarded for doing this, where jealousy is expressed in a way that causes everything to feel a little bit more equal, we say, well, that's not productive. That's not going to create enough value. And what the San people would say is, so what? Let's compare this to a study that William Muir did about 20 years ago. Margaret Heffernan talks about it in her great TED Talk. In the study, he took a bunch of chickens and was researching the pecking order. Yes, that's where the word comes from. And what he did with one group of chickens is for six generations, every time a chicken was super productive, easy to measure, how big are their eggs, how often do they lay them, he would keep those chickens and breed them and he'd eat the other chickens for lunch. Do this over and over and over again for six generations until you have super chickens. And then he took a bunch of other chickens and put them together. They seemed to get along. So now you've got two groups of chickens, a group of chickens that were picked because they get along, and a group of super chickens. Well, he left them alone for a while, and when he came back, you know what he found? We would expect, as Westerners who believe in our culture, that he found that the super chickens were laying super eggs. In fact, what he found was almost all of them were dead. That these chickens were so non-cooperative with each other, so used to being the superstar, that they pecked each other to death. Whereas the other chickens, the chickens that were chosen because they worked together well, they were alive and as happy as a captive chicken can be. What's the point? The point is, The purpose of culture is the story we tell ourselves about what we're doing when we're being part of the culture. And if the story you tell yourself isn't making you happy, tell yourself a different story. It's that simple. There are two concepts at work here. The first one is the idea that we can change the story we tell ourselves this is the magic of self-help books. Self-help books don't help anyone who doesn't want to be helped. The same way a drowning person is very difficult to rescue if they're not willing to hold on to the life buoy or the hook. That a self-help book that does its job well creates a new culture for somebody, a new story they can tell themselves. People like us tell ourselves this story, not that story. If you're open to finding a new story, one about participation or sufficiency or meaning, and you can surround yourself with ideas or even better people, you can build a new culture. And that culture can make you happier, more productive, more engaged. The second thing we have to wrestle with is the idea of more. Because as Sean has discovered in our capitalist culture, better isn't often the point. It's more. And instead, at Askenosi Chocolate, their watchword is enough. Once they have enough profit, then they can take the surplus and use it for better. They don't sacrifice the quality of the chocolate. When it comes to the quality of the chocolate, they're obsessive and they push it hard. But the purpose of Askenozzi is not more, more profit, more chocolate bars sold, more retail distribution, more employees. That's not what it's for. What it's for is to create a story, a story and a lever that leads to better. So when Sean says it's not about the chocolate, what he's saying is, Let's use chocolate as a lever. Let's use it as an opportunity to create a new culture, a culture where it's more likely we are going to be happy with the story we're telling ourselves. That we get very hung up on this idea of insufficiency. We get hung up on the idea that we don't have enough. As a result, many people have defined our culture in the following way. The purpose of culture is to enable capitalism because, the thinking goes, capitalism gets us more stuff and more stuff makes us happier. But what if it's the other way around? What if the purpose of capitalism is to create a culture? What if the purpose of capitalism and trade and productivity and engagement is to make us happier? What if that is the culture we are seeking? If the story you're telling yourself isn't making you happy, what happens if you tell yourself a different story? A nice bunch of questions came in from last week's episode. Thank you all for submitting them. I want to feature one today because I think it highlights a key point that we were trying to get at. Hi, Seth. This is Diana from Uruguay. Thank you so much for Akimbo. I love it, and I share it with all my friends. Speaking of sharing, I have a question. What is the relationship that you find between length Depth and the ability for people to take in your content and share it. I wonder sometimes if people are more likely to share content that is short and easy to digest, though I find myself wanting to write in length and in depth. What are your thoughts on this? Thank you so much. Thanks for this, Diana. This is how culture changes how it becomes corrupted, and then how it moves up, sideways, or down. There is a desire to be popular, to be seen, to get attention, to spread the word. It is amplified and amplified dramatically by advertising. Advertisers, advertisers who don't understand the benefit of focus, want mass. They understand that if they've got a funnel, putting more attention in the top of the funnel, undifferentiated attention, they don't care, they'll take it all, gives them, ultimately, more impact at the bottom. Now, I don't always agree with this strategy, but this strategy is what drives the money. And so, if you've got a podcast, or a blog, or a TV show, or a radio show, or a magazine, the pressure from the advertisers is always the same. Get us more. Get us in front of more people. How can you have a bigger impact? And if you're running for office or trying to make some change in the world or sell more cars or grow more uh, plants in your nursery, it's still exactly the same. More demands, more attention. What that pushes us to do is dumb it down. Because dumbing it down means removing the nuance. It means making it so that people can snack on it, giving it to them at a glance. And if one person starts to do this, If one competitor shows up and says, here, this is faster and easier than the alternatives, well, then the ratchet turns and hence begins a race to the bottom. If we define bottom as simple and easy and direct and short and glib, because the ratchet will keep turning and attention will keep fleeing, that people are way more likely to buy a hamburger than to spend seven hours simmering a pot of heirloom beans over the stove. Sure, some people want to do that, but most people, most people want their food in a minute. Because a little while ago, someone was offering it to them in two minutes. Before that, three minutes, and the ratchet turned. So now we have a dilemma. We have a dilemma as people who want to influence the culture. Because a lot of things that we'd like to teach, a lot of changes that we'd like to make cannot be learned while standing on one foot. That you don't want a doctor who went to overnight medical school. You don't want even a masseuse who learned how to give a massage from a YouTube video. That all of the things that are important to us, that we pay for, that we wait in line for, that we remember, those are things that were hard won. Those were things that involved nuance and sophistication. They were things that required a bit of a leap, trial and error, digging in deeper. So if you're going to try to change the culture, you got to make a choice. And the choice is race to the top or race to the bottom. And the problem with the race to the bottom is you might win, or worse, come in second. That ever cheapening our culture, making it shorter and faster and more guttural, figuring out how to objectify people and push people against each other and put more violence in your movie, Give everyone a subtitle. Make it really clear. Telegraph every joke. Yeah, that's how you get more popular. But it doesn't last. It doesn't last because there's always someone willing to go for an even shorter shortcut than you. I hope that one of the benefits of this akimbo riff I'm doing every week is helping people see that maybe we don't have to go in that direction. That it turns out that you don't need everyone You don't even need a lot of people. You just need a few people, a few people who care, a few people who will enroll in the journey, who need to be seen and are willing to see. Because if we can do that work gradually, drip by drip, day by day, maybe we can get under people's skin. Not everyone, just a few people. And if we can transform them, we can raise the standard. And if we raise the standard, the ratchet begins to turn in the other direction. Hence, we see things like more sophisticated free jazz getting made, more records being sold on vinyl, people being willing to sit with a 600 or 700-page book, that at the same time that To Kill a Mockingbird was a huge bestseller, so was The Power Broker, at least over the course of decades, because The Power Broker is definitive. It's a book worth reading if you want to read a book like this. It's harder to make work like this. It's harder to sell work like this. But fortunately, there are Robert Caros in the world. Fortunately, there are people in the world who care enough to be meaningful and specific and focused and difficult as opposed to simply chasing more. Thanks for listening. We love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this week's episode, please visit akimbo.link, a-k-i-m-b-o dot l-i-n-k, and press the appropriate button. If you can, go ahead and share Akimbo with someone who you think will appreciate it. See you next time.
1: There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem problem. So much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned, it's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, We've been lied to, but here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac podcast network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.